Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen, to Saint Dudes. And this episode marks the beginning of Crypto December on Saint Dudes. Now I know this episode was supposed to be uploaded a week earlier, but I had a small accident. Nothing to worry about. Now we are all alive and kicking. So the first episode in Crypto December, we have had Grads and Petri on the show. Now who are these fine gentlemen? You'll come to know in few minutes. We talked about crypto, DeFi, economic philosophies, future predictions, flaws in existing model, and much more in this episode. So whatever you're doing right now, relax and be a part of this conversation. Except if you're driving, then you should probably focus on the driving more. But you get the point. Without much further ado, here's episode twenty-five. Welcome to the show, Grads and Patry. Thanks for coming here. Thanks for having me. Excited to uh, have a conversation today. Thanks, Nish, for inviting me again. I'm happy to be with you, Grads. You too, Patry. Our audience will recognize Patricius from the last two episodes of season one, the Encyclopedia of Fitness and the Encyclopedia of Health and Wellness. I must say these were the most informative episode of entire season one. So I'm excited. What do you bring on the table for DeFi this time? Yeah, it should be a great conversation today. I mean, there's a lot of um, you know the crypto metaverse is real. Um, the, the pace of innovation is uh, exponentially expansive and um, there's no topics, uh, you know, there's no short uh, amount of topics that we can get into today. That's very true. It's such a, this this space is expanding so fast, it's so hard to keep a track of. I've been trying to, you know, tiptoe my way into it, but still, it's very hard. Even if you give a lot of time, things are moving so quickly. So let's hope we'll cover the basics of DeFi first. So before dwelling into the good stuff, the deep stuff, Let's start off with something basic, the fundamental need for DeFi. So we need DeFi, DeFi stands for decentralized finance. So we need decentralized finance, obviously, because there are some problems with the existing model that is centralized finance. So I'd like you all to explain to the audience what's wrong with centralized finance. First off, let's differentiate between centralized and decentralized. What say who wants to go first? I could take a shot at it. So uh, DeFi or decentralized fa- finance is, is just a term that en- encapsulates an un- umbrella term of like financial services on public blockchains, primarily ETH, Ethereum. Um, with DeFi, you can do like most of the things that banks support today, earn interest, borrow, lend, buy insurance, trade derivatives, trade assets, and more. But it's faster and doesn't require paperwork of a third, a trusted third party. So people in crypto generally, DeFi is kind of a global peer-to-peer, um, pseudonymous and open to all ecosystem. Okay, that's pretty interesting. One thing I'd like to add here that uh, the existing bank model. So banks earn as they give out loans and so they get some interest from it. And then they pay some amount to the people who have deposited their money. So the difference in the interest is their profit. When it comes to DeFi, if you are borrowing something, you'll get it at a much cheaper rate of interest. And if you're lending something, you'll get much higher rate of interest. Because essentially there is no third party institution in between who needs to take their profits. So it makes the transaction pretty seamless. This is one thing that, uh, you know, the mainstream is ignoring. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, looking at the, the positives from my perspective and, you know, working within the ecosystem, um, trying to understand to get my feet around, you know, what did the traditional finance models look like? How was money being made? What's the importance of velocity of money, especially in a decentralized digital economy? And then also, how does crypto native technologies um you know, make it more efficient, um, more value um, for all the participants within the network. So, you know, from my perspective, you know, the the pros when I'm looking at it is it's open. So you don't need that trusted third party. Um, you as a sovereign individual have the ability to take on and cure risk, but also the reward that comes with the risk. Um, it's pseudonymous. So you don't have to provide your name. That's actually changing. If you look at institutional um, 
governance models that are being implemented that I think moving forward are going to be a key requirement because governments aren't going to stop crypto, but they are going to tax it, right? And building institutional custody models, uh, you know, banks, payment providers within the space, um, you have to stay uh, legally compliant. So that's something that's not changing, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if we get to play as being first adopters. Um, when I look at other benefits, it's flexible. So you can move your assets anywhere at any time without asking permission, waiting for long transfers to finish or pay expensive fees. Um, and it's faster. The, the interest rates and rewards often update rapidly, as quickly as like 15 seconds. And you could be significantly higher than traditional Wall Street. Um, also, there's a there's a piece that makes it transparent. Everyone involved can kind of see the full set of transactions, so you get to have more visibility of on-chain analytics. And I'll I'll, I'll do the downsides as I want to call it out because it's it's not a hundred percent perfect, but you know that comes with innovation and and you know more problems means more more solutions that are going to be solved by the market. But when I'm looking at the downsides right now, just uh, what I'm seeing from my perspective is fluctuating kind of transaction rates on the ETH blockchain um, can mean that active trading can get expensive. Um, depending on which DAP you use and how you use them, your investment could experience high volatility. Uh, if you've been in the space, you're, you're probably used to this. Um, and then you also, like one of the biggest downsides as, as the ecosystems and the, the blockchains just expansively grow and then also interoperate is you have to maintain your own records for tax purposes um, and regulations can vary region to region you just mentioned dApps the audience who don't know what dApps are I think it's decentralized applications and we'll cover them later it's a bit of the advanced stuff it's the application of DeFi so we'll get into that later so, grads, how do you think this tax thing will actually work? So, for example, I'll give you a scenario. I've, I've been holding Ethereum, for example, on my hardware wallet. And it's been growing in value. It's been growing in value. So, most likely, the, the way I think that uh, government can tax it is when I withdraw it for fiat currency. So, what if I take, a, what if I take small proportions of my assets and withdraw them according to my need? Government doesn't need to do my entire asset evaluation. So how will they get through this? I mean, you can use Etherscan. Um, there's companies like CypherTrace um, that provide on-chain analytics um, that the U.S. government works with. So there's definitely ways that are being utilized today and technology companies that are in place today to help um the IRS, you know, find transactions, right? So using AI, using non-language pattern recognition, and, um, you know, there's a couple other technologies that help with these on-chain analytics. Um, so the taxation, from my perspective, is if you buy crypto with fiat, you're all right if you're holding it. If it's in an interest-bearing um, account, other than like a ledger, say you're not making anything on the ledger, just the undervalue or the value of the the asset of ETH as it goes up, you don't have to pay. But if you're in something like BlockFi, which is you know a centralized finance um, way to bear an APY, you're gonna have to pay. You're gonna have to report and pay the interest being made. And the other one is anytime you transact either crypto to crypto or crypto back to fiat is considered a taxable event. Yeah, so it's important to check with your country's regulations because it varies from country to country because I believe Portugal has zero of that. Zero taxation? Yeah, exactly. Some guys are luckier. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you see a mass exodus from the U.S. to um, Dubai to Puerto Rico, which has tax advantages um, in that regard. But um, yeah, definitely look at in your country's region. Um, it's a definitely something to take 
into account from a risk perspective and the volume of transactions compared to you know what you can pay. Um, there are I won't recommend this. There are ways to tax harvest if you're in high taxable countries where say you bought Bitcoin, you knew Bitcoin was going up by the end of the year, which I think I'm a firm believer of as we rocket ship up the next three months. Um, if you bought it at 50 and then you uh, sold it at 30 and waited, I believe it's a month and you bought back in, then that's considered a capital gains loss. So there's definitely tax strategies just like in the stock market that people can implement. And I would just say go research online for your country if uh, you think that might be a problem in the future. Definitely. These are some good points. Read the regulations. <laughs> because I think um, Binance very recently suspended futures trading in some European countries. And the people were unaware of it. They had some positions opened. And they're stuck. <laughs> so yeah, read your regulations. So I think I'll come back to the earlier question that I asked. What's wrong with the current financial system? We just discussed the good things about DeFi. But what's wrong with the centralized finance system? You want to take this, Pat- Patricia? Well, yeah, I'm going to say, uh, well, what I, I'm a newbie. Um, um, so, and I bet I did my research. Um I find in the simple terms for guys that are new, the way I see it is that they lost control. They lost accountability. They lost control. Their, their debt to GDP ratio is absurd. Uh, and I think I, I'm not sure the percentage, uh, I, I have trouble retaining this one, but I think it, once they passed 80% of their total debt to GDP ratio for a country, it's impossible to come back i believe uh, grads is around 80 yeah. percent. what do you think yeah it's in and it's higher or 100 yeah okay yeah so like you got a bunch of countries that like they're at a above a certain total debt to gdp ratio which is absurd and i, I also been listening to another podcast uh, with robert breedlove and the, the individual who was talking was saying uh, even if you tax everyone for the year, 100% companies, everyone, they cannot pay off the debt. So I, I, I listen to all this and all I hear, all I, I come to senses is like, there's no way up. So it's, it's, it's going to, to the grave. I, I don't know. Maybe they might find a way out, but I don't see a way out. It, it's absurd. And now with COVID, they keep printing and then they, there's another Twitter feed I see that they're they're gonna mint a what is it a trillion dollar platinum coin or something? It's it's getting ridiculous. It's like uh, like I find I I find I find that a joke. Like it's a joke. They're just gonna mint one coin and that's the value of a trillion because you say so. Like nothing makes sense to me anymore. Like so uh, I'm sort of like okay. So I don't know what the end game result is, but I don't think the end game result is good. Do you have anything to add, Grats? But basically, in simple terms, that's what I—that's what I see, man. Around the world, globally. Yeah, the United States is literally clown world right now. There's this website called usdebtclock.org. <laughs> I'm familiar. No, this, I've opened this right now. Yeah, it's, it's a so it's a clock, an ever increasing uh, database of what is the current U.S. national debt. So as of now, at the time of recording, it's $28.8 trillion. So the debt per citizen is $86,000. 86, holy shit. $228,000 per taxpayer. <laughs> yep. Oh man, so, it used to be a lot less last time I checked it, cheese. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, You once you understand... So here's, here's my come up is like I'm... I'm from a small town in Canada originally, but a suitcase, um, lived in eight different cities, um, you know, got involved in the crypto market, you know, 2019 before it really took off on its latest cycle. And all these questions come up when you start learning about Bitcoin first, right? Uh, Or crypto first, you know, you start with Bitcoin and you go down the rabbit hole and then you start looking at the history of money and you start asking questions like, what is value? Um, you know, 
why do, what is the society value currency? What, what is currency? Um, you start asking all these questions and then you start looking at things of how the money's not pegged to anything, but it's just, you know, an instrument of debt, right? One dollar is one debt instrument. Um, and then you start looking at, you know, current debts around the world and strategies that governments have used historically throughout cycles of inflating the debt away at the end of a currency era. And I think currencies historically have 80 to 100 year life cycles um, before they, they crash. Every fiat currency has crashed. And you know, from my perspective, we're at the end of that cycle that's getting prolonged and we're in that inflationary print, print your way out, de, de inflate the debt away phase. And I think since me being brought up in school, like, you know, this this type of finance I was never educated upon. And I think most people are unaware. Um, crypto looks like a Ponzi scheme from the outside in until you understand how the current system is set up to fail. This is definitely true. The first time I discovered crypto, when I first understood how does this thing work, what is the need for it? Uh, while I was entering the rabbit hole, I was shocked. I, I was questioning the reality. <laughs> what I was taught that uh, the safest way to place your money it's in the banks and all that stuff. I was like, I was excited that banks give me three percent interest on my money. Wow, that's crazy! It's so good. Now <laughs> the reality has come crashing down. When you see the returns on D apps, <laughs> it's really crazy. I imagine being an average person in USA, and when you see the statistics. You're obliged to pay $86,000 for something that is not even done by you. You have no part in this. Also, the you just mentioned about the end of the cycle. So yeah, US has a debt ceiling, I believe. Do you have any idea what will happen? I've just heard about this debt ceiling. They can't. Yeah, they, it's mathematically impossible to continue to pay the interest on the debt. They can't lower the debt ceiling. That's the catch-22. Okay, so basically it is the... It's the point of no return. Yeah, and that's why you see people taking on more and more risk within the market. You see it in priceation of everything, the inflation of assets everywhere from stocks, bonds, commodities, housing. Um, it all goes up, right? Um, you know, I, I don't know if we're in 1929 currently. I don't know what year we're in, but we're definitely in that. We've been in that phase over the last year and a half because looking at... Um, the way in March 2020 when everything crashed and how it responded even though we were in a global pandemic and you know here in the US at least people are getting laid off due to COVID people are in kind of existential crises I think um, and kind of nihilistic um, and not going to find work and we have valuations of companies just continuing to go up um, and it you know I think Definitely. it all goes back to Lack, lack of sound money, right? Um, it's just money being stored because, you know, the walls of Wall Street know it needs to find a hope to gain APY and they're just taking advantage of the, the current cycle. I think if most people knew that... It's not just the outraged. US market. It's not. It's globally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because the yeah. Indian stock market, so... Like uh, how you how you guys have S and P five hundred, we have our index of our stock market. It's called Sensex and Nifty, and these these indexes are at an all time yeah, high. Sensex, yeah, they are at an all time high, which makes no sense. Literally, the entire system is on the verge of collapse. Yeah, we had a pandemic. They're printing money, and it's an all time high. That makes no it it's illogical. But I, I like a lot of people don't make sense. It, I was gonna say I, mean, I looked at it from. How you guys are looking at it right now um but i also had the benefit so you know in 2019 i was working for um you know a, a well-renowned multi-party computation um cryptography company that was providing solutions of custody services as a custody tech provider so competitors like curve fireblocks we were um you know, competing with and going after crypto native companies and, you know, crypto wallet companies, crypto exchanges, crypto custodians, and then also um, tier one, tier two 
Yeah, so tier one, tier two, financial institutions, um, you know, global banks. And then, you know, I never had that perspective of uh, how Wall Street worked, how the financial markets worked. It was just self-education through crypto because I was like, nothing makes sense. Nothing is connected. I need to do more research. And then um, as crypto blew up in 2022, I had the opportunity to jump over to a big four firm and consult with a team of nine um, for global corporations um, through 2021 and currently. Um, and you know, my key burning questions and reason why I took that opportunity was, you know, I wanted to see if the crypto space was gonna be adopted. Like from my perspective, you're like everything you guys have said, seen, feel is how I felt. And I wanted to know, you know, the old guard doesn't die like right away. They don't give up the kingdom. But I wanted to see if there was institutional, continued institutional adoption. And, you know, that gave me a perspective where I was putting it on countries' balance sheets, opening up crypto native custodians, you know, within different parts of the world, designing NFT strategies for global Fortune 500 companies, strategizing with tier one, tier two financial institutions. And there's definitely a way that institutional money looks at, you know, investments that differs from a retail investor. I think that education is important because it, you understand that they're, they're looking for yield, right? They're looking for APY. And if they adopt something, then, then comes, you know, the pushbacks from government, which we're seeing right now, but also comes the money for lobbyists. Right. Um, so in my perspective, governments use compliance regulation to slow it down. That's what they've been doing, but they can't kill it. Um, and really more institutionals will, will come out and say, you know, they're in it with different strategies. And I think right now is, you know, the greatest wealth transfer in history. And if you're on the right side of the trade and early, you know, this is a really big opportunity for retail um, where, you know, right now people within the community, within the crypto space for the last eight years have edge, right? They know how these networks work. They know what staking is. They know what lending is. They know the different cycles. Historically, it's mapping the 2013-2014 cycle. They're using data analytics, AI, you know, they're beating Wall Street right now, Um and then there's some hedge funds and some uh, money that comes in and, and their API, their APY is crazy and their, their ROI is crazy. And, you know, big institutions want to get in as well. But the next hurdle and the level of compliance that is needed for them to be able to diversi like diversify liquidity within to these markets is going to be the next phase. That's going to be like chapter 10, but it's coming. So for the people that don't know what APY means, it's annual percentage yield. It's the percentage you get at the end of the year with the amount you invest for the, for the audience out there. So of course, of course, they, you want to chase after high APY. So that's what institutions and people want. They want high APY. Of course, being fun fundamentally sound, what you're putting it into. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, it's eye opening, right? Like you as a <clears throat> retail investor, if you're in this market, you felt fear of missing out. I think what was eye opening to me was, you know, Fortune 500 companies, institutions, um, countries feel that too. So it's amazing. The game theory is amazing within this, this space. Yeah. Nish, you wanted to say something? Yeah. I'd. Yeah, I'd advise the audience to listen to what Grad just said again, because this is some insider stuff that is very helpful for you. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, lots of great insights. So we've been anticipating this crash. And uh, I think this date, it was uh, set at around 18th October, I believe, that they need to take some decision what to do about this debt. And I think, uh, as usual, Mr. Joe Biden has raised the ceiling. 
So they are just delaying the inevitable. So what do you think will happen once this bubble pops? What will be the worldwide scenario? Will it be something like the 2008 economic crash or something worse? Or what's what's your thinking? What's your prediction? Yeah, Grads, do you think there it's possible that they could uh, that it'll happen or they seem like they've been they f- always find a way out. What's your opinion on that? Because I, I yeah, exactly. I'm lost on that. They they keep extending it. The bankers have always got it easy. Yeah, I mean they arbitrage. Mm. They so something called in the investment space is called risk management. Like they take profits. They um you know, they find they they go into depending on where they are in the market cycle where they think um the risk is currently using data analytics and metrics and and risk management strategies you know they've taken an investment and then you know they put it into things that you will protect them so i mean it's frustrating to see like for example the housing market like patrice uh talk about what the average price of a house went up in Canada last two years. Uh, okay, okay. So let's let's give an example. Uh, my area, um, east side, uh, Quebec area. Uh, let's say we take uh, for the guys in the west, it's a one bedroom apart- apartment, one bedroom condo. Um, it was six years ago. It was around, let's say, I'm gonna say one ninety. 195,000 uh, or in the east we call it the three and a half uh, three rooms and a bathroom uh, now today checking this 195 for the same bedroom one bedroom condo is three 325 to 350 exactly thousand. So the flight of like capital is trying to find a house, right? That will protect its investment, its gains in the market. So you see, you know, institutions, um, global investment, arbitraging out of their country and buying up real estate around the globe. Um, you have companies like blank, like this is kind of fucked up when you kind of research this, but essentially the Fed, U.S. government outsourced um, some of the investment operations to BlackRock. So BlackRock gets a division that invests on behalf of the Fed, um, which is kind of fucked up if you think about it because they're a player in the market. Um, one of the biggest players globally. Shady shit. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, so one of the strategies they're doing currently in helping prop up the U.S. housing market is they're buying individual housing suburbs just in like around the U.S. So... You know their their requirements for their, um, like their key requirements is to find safe assets to purchase on behalf of their their clients and find APY um, and find yield generating operations and that's moving into uh, you know assets like housing real estate um, right now from an individual retailer. So retailers like individual retailers that are looking to buy their first house, it's almost impossible because you have stagnation and wage, um, advantages, inflation and de, uh, devaluing the purchasing power of the U S dollar. Um, the highest housing prices with, because of the lowest rates currently, and then you're competing against, uh, institutional players on purchasing a house. So you kind of seeing, you know, it's an unfair market, I guess you could say, in my eyes, when you're looking at it, if you don't know what's going on. Personally, I think this is the time to buy as much gold and silver you can. Because <laughs> there is a lot of uncertainty by the end of this year and the beginning, the Q1 of the next year, it's going to be crazy. I think either we'll see a crazy crypto pump or we'll see a global crisis. <laughs> yeah, I think we, I think you see both. Right. I mean, as every as everything gets as money is cheap and trying to find a house like money is going from institutional players within the crypto markets as well. Right. Like, don't get me wrong. We're in the last part of this cycle and, you know, investment opportunities um, within the crypto space is is crazy. Right. And you have institutional capital flowing in from 
you know, custody tech providers to DeFi providers um, to NFT providers to different platforms. And, and I don't see that slowing down and that will help this market and ecosystem grow. I mean, I was frustrated when you kind of wake up because you you realize that you didn't really know the vast rules of the game and, and the financial markets. But, you know, crypto definitely gives the individual um, the opportunity not only to learn, but also compete due to, you know, this is the smartest. I like in this space, I've met the smartest people at all domains of <laughs> Life. It's like a group of polymaths, essentially. So, like, you got mathematicians, cryptographers, security experts, um, traditional finance investment um, players. Like, you have this whole ecosystem that brings their own domain of knowledge, and you can learn something from everybody. And that's what I've tried to do and continue to do moving forward. And if you know where we are in the cycle currently, like, there's definitely ways to win and, and do well for yourself. And, and that's how markets have always worked, right? Crypto is not propped up by anything. And I think that's so cool. Um, it's definitely manipulated like the stock market. Don't get me wrong. Like there's big whales and, but there's no safety <laughs> nets, right? Um, yeah. and, and with the higher risk comes the higher reward. And I think if you're educated in the space and willing to take, to take some rest, there's some big returns that, um, you know, an individual player can get. Yeah, I just wanted to add like what Grad said and what I like when I started and I was in the same boat as you, Nish, is I was a, bit, a little bit like not sure because I, from my research and how the entities work, I'm like, is this a trap? But after understanding that this is new technology and coming to a sense that when the internet started there was of course traps too but that technology is what everything got built around on so i applied the same analogy that if this is like the new technology stuff is going to build around it so i'm like that that was the moment uh, grads that was the moment i clicked that uh, that's where i just completely jumped from one side to the other because i said if this is the technology and stuff is going to be built around it. So I just completely shot off and did the switch. Like that day, I just said, fuck it. I'm in, you know? And uh, what I like yeah, about it... Because too, crypto is not just an asset class. It's an entire ecosystem that is getting built. And it only yeah. tends to get better. Yeah, it, it is getting better. It's getting better. It's going exponential. And what I like about it, 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 it I like the idea that uh, don't trust verify and it's i i enjoy math uh, I, I used to be big on calculus and math it's math you cannot fuck with math math does not lie you know so however it's built it's mathematically sound nobody can fuck with it so there's no corrupt corrupted individual okay there's there's always those scam coins or what you call them there you have to be careful of course it would be yeah, and you get rugged. Rugged meaning uh, you get pulled, you get stolen all your your coins. But the the the, the fundamental BTC, Link, and ETH, the fundamentals. These four, these three fundamentals. You, it's mathematically sound, good community, and and, and nobody nobody can change a code. No one, no no idiot can come in and say, you know what, I don't like it. I'm gonna change a code. Nobody can do it. And it's, since it's decentralized, the attack one vector, it, it, nothing will go down. The chain will just reject that that attack. That, that's all I gotta say to add. Um, uh, my my uh, basic uh, knowledge on that, and it's it's amazing. I really enjoy that that mathematically sound code that cannot be tampered with. And it's like I I, I sleep well at night knowing that no one can do anything to it and i am in full control and i don't need anyone else that that's amazing it's 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 it it brings back my my the manly virtues i find and it's just amazing i don't i i find that's that's my opinion the connection i find and what i have the relationship with it yeah, custody of assets undoubtedly has to be the biggest uh, plus point of crypto. The entire crypto space as a general. Uh, 
So you just mentioned about uh, no idiot can change the code. But what if a group of people want to change or rather don't want to change something, a proposal? What uh, I think something happened a few years ago and now we have two versions of Bitcoin. We have the regular Bitcoin, the BTC we as we know. And there's Bitcoin Satoshi value, right? Oh, so yeah. what's up with that? Uh, when that happens, it's um, it's called a fork. They you could do a soft fork, a hard fork. I I don't go more deeper, but some okay. people like let's say uh, don't agree um, with um, the way BTC is evolving. So they say I'm gonna do a fork of it. So they made Satoshi Coin. What is it called? I don't remember. But anyways, uh, Coin Satoshi, Satoshi Coin. Satoshi value. It's Satoshi value. So they said, they basically said, and correct me yeah. on grads on this because I'm, I'm a newbie. Um, they basically said, uh, <laughs> we don't agree with the way it's going and we're going to make a fork and this is, this is our, this is going to be our way and this is the code that we're going to do it. So I, uh, soft fork, I believe is that and a hard fork is when they update the protocol. But in order to update the protocol, all my, for BTC, all miners have to agree. I believe. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. No, that's that's right. I mean, um, I think I think it's really cool, right? Because it's true democracy. Like, if you were invested in a project, if you have built the community up, you've been involved. You, you it's like go read um, uh, Block Size Wars and that that book that will detail. It's like. Uh, it's like a country revolution, right? Like you have a split mindset and then you vote. If there's a hard fork, you go down the path that you believe in and you see where it ends up, but there's no going back after you choose which fork you go down. Um, and it's fascinating to me because it's true democracy of community vote, right? So I, I don't know. I, I find it fascinating. I Working in the cyberspace, and security vectors like I won't go down this rabbit hole but even the attack vectors and manipulation of um, you know voting units is something that I think is being highlighted right now but it's just really cool to be able to be an individual contributor within a project and have a say uh, a vote and where it's going and it's immutably uh, recorded on the blockchain We recently yeah. had the EIP-1559 update on Ethereum. So was it hard fork or soft fork? I believe that was a hard fork. The EIP is a hard fork, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because you can't reverse it. Everybody that stays on ETH. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't. I didn't like really honestly what they did with the EIP-1559. <laughs> But, 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 but it is stable. It is more stable, 100%. But the gas fees, uh, by the way, for the audience on there, anytime you're in a chain, you, you will have a gas fee. So the gas fee is you use the initial. Yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, okay. Okay. So I'll just say you have a gas fee, but I don't like what they did with the, the gas mm-hmm. fees, but it is more stable. Yes. And I hope, I'm hoping that E2.0 will also address that issue, but we'll see. The other interesting perspective too is... Well, the problem is that it will be consistent. Yeah, I was just going to highlight uh, just an additional point is that the regulation has come out um, and vaguely indicated that blo- uh, Bitcoin and ETH were considered commodities um, from a taxation perspective. But I think if you if you took the fork going to ETH 2.0, uh, yeah, I think that could be considered security. And I guess we'll see. Jeez, <laughs> they, they, it seems like they don't know, they don't understand it either. Yeah, they're not being. <sighs> they're trying to slow it down, in my perspective. Um, they're not being very articulate to the crypto native companies to make it easy for adoption, because it's happening too fast, right? Like, why would you want to give up? Yeah, they can't keep up. They, that's what I find. They can't keep up, and it's hard to make a regulation when they can't keep up. Yeah, and I mean the crypto company, crypto native companies are struggling with it, um, with the regulation clarity. I mean even institutionals, which are pushing now, like Fidelity Investments, just came out. I mean they're pushing for an ETF right now, and it's been three years. 
you know, or two years since they've been pushing that. Um, and, you know, regulation, um, clar clarity of regulation, not only in the U.S., but globally, is important um, for these institutions to be able to um, put capital within the market. Um, that's definitely a big a big thing for them to be able to participate within the markets. And we want that, right? We're in. We want more money in here. Well, also that you bring a good point. Yeah, I just want to say niche right away. Like you notice that these big entities, the, the bigger the entity is, the harder it is for them to adapt. It's like a big ship. It's harder to turn. So yeah, it's like the Titanic. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that uh, Elon Musk pulled off from the scheme of, you know, you can buy Tesla with a Bitcoin? So apparently he said that there are some energy concerns, but I don't really find sense in it. What do you think is the reason? I can't comment on that. <laughs> Under NDA. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Classified. <laughs> That's pretty diplomatic. All right, we'll take it. So let's jump into a bit of a more core DeFi. So we talked about how amazing DeFi is, how stuff happens automatically. The lending, borrowing, staking, the gas fees and all that stuff. How, how everything is automated. So let's touch the topic of smart contracts. So as I understand, uh, in the regular world, we have contracts which state some conditions. Once the conditions are fulfilled, the transactions happen. But... Uh, these are based on third parties. There is some other entity that takes care that the transaction uh, goes on smoothly. But smart contract is just the electronic version, the cryptic version of a, of a regular contract. So there are conditions. Once the conditions are filled, the contract executes itself. And to that, you need to pay some gas fees. Is it right? Yes. So... Uh, like I was saying before, uh, whatever chain you're on, let's say you're on the BTC chain, you have a transaction fee or a gas fee uh, that you have to pay. So it's it's a small amount depending on the... Uh, some chains might be bigger, some chains might be smaller. It's just the way... No, let's, the BTC chain or the R, uh, Rook, Rookstock chain, uh, which is a layer two on top of Bitcoin, uh, is a small amount. Uh, basically what it means is in order for the chain to do the transaction uh, you pay a small fee of the chain like the, BT, the BTC or the RBTC of the, the chain uh, e, uh, for ETH with after EIP 1559 because of the stability you pay uh, right now it's at 80 GUI right now I'm checking it now on my computer it's 80 GUI we're talking if you do a swap on Uniswap it's 55 55 USD, so that's pretty high. But 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 basically, it, it's 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 a transaction fee. They call it a gas fee, but it's a. I look at it as a transaction fee to operate to do a certain transaction on the chain. Now, when you go into a smart contract, you have to do this in order for to engage in a smart contract, whatever it is, be it um, yielding, staking, liquidity pool, such and such. So I'll stop there. Yeah, well, uh, for a smart contract, it is inevitable that you have to pay the gas fees because it is on chain. When it comes to transactions, I think layer two solutions, the layer two scaling ones, it's pretty based. We can use that, of course, because it is off chain. So, uh, well, before we get advanced into it, I'd let the grads explain what is layer two solution. Yeah, so I mean, like Ethereum is like one of the most popular blockchain networks currently used. Um, the fact that a total number of decentralized applications on ETH, um, I think there was like 2,000, 3,000 of them with many more applications under development. Um, so the potential of Ethereum boosting for decentralized finance space indicates possibly massive upsurge in the number of applications and users on the ETH network. So the continually rising number of users on the ETH network kind of has a certain limitation of the network. So looking at ETH layer two solutions come, in, come into picture when you're looking for scalability. Um, so even if Ethereum is working 
on in introducing kind of sharding as a feasible scaling solution for ETH 2.0, it's, it's, um, it's in development as we're kind of seeing some of the layer two solution providers like Phantom, um, what are the other ones? Uh, Matic, um, and you're seeing ways, yeah, you're seeing ways to reduce the, the cost of transactions on um, that layer one uh, network. So I just think of it as a way to reduce fees while scaling the overall ecosystem. Yeah, I think the best example, the I best. I think some of the most notable ones like Lightning Network. I love Lightning Network. Yeah, can you talk about that? Because I, 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 I haven't delved in it, to be honest. Like I, I, I don't. Like I'm on, I'm on Rootstock and just the normal BTC. But I, what's the Lightning? That's that's something I keep hearing, but I, I don't understand it at all. Okay. Nish, you want to take it or do you want? Yeah, you definitely. So, as you said, it is a layer two solution for Bitcoin, but it is optimized for transactions, regular transaction in Satoshis. So the most uh, common wallet, it's called uh, the wallet of Satoshi, I believe. So it's a mobile app, very easy to use. So what happens basically in Lightning Network is, so let's take uh, three institutions or well, three wallets. For example, there is Graz, Patricius and myself. So... Uh, you've loaded some bitcoins in your wallet. So for example, your wallet now has two bitcoins. Patricius. You send one bitcoin to me. So what happens is, this transaction is not noted on the blockchain. This is off-chain. The Lightning Network takes note of this. Okay. So what's happening is, now my wallet is updated as one bitcoin. Then again, if I spend this one bitcoin and I send it to grads. Now what has happened is, uh, if you see the displacement, not the distance, the displacement, your Bitcoin out of your two, one has gone from me to grads. So at the end of the day, what is, what's happened? What's happening? Your one Bitcoin has gone from yours, your wallet to grads wallet, right? So after multiple transactions, we'll say, we'll take the initial form. What is the initial condition of every wallet? The uh. initial balance and we'll take the final balance. And we'll balance it out with one single transaction on the blockchain. So instead of having every microtransaction noted on the blockchain, we are collecting them. Right. So instead of going from point A to point B, noting on blockchain, point B to point C, noting on blockchain, we are going directly from point A to point C and then noting on blockchain. Huh. This is how basically Lightning Network works. So it's the beginning and end result, basically. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Lightning Network is, def is like the second layer added to Bitcoin's blockchain that allows for off-chain transactions. So transactions between parties that are not currently on the blockchain network. So multiple payment channels between parties of uh, parties or Bitcoin users make up that second layer. Uh, the Lightning Network channel is a two-party transaction in which parties can make or receive payments from each other and it enhances the scalability of uh, blockchain tra applications by kind of managing those transactions outside of the blockchain mainnet, which is layer one, while still benefiting from the mainnet's powerful transaction security paradigm. So how do we kind of explain this? Um, a good metaphor I would say is, um, is to compare it to a bar tab. So you keep an open channel tab with somebody like a bartender and every time you interact or buy a beer those bitcoins are sent through the channel once you finish the transactions you close the channel tab and that interacts with the base layer of bitcoin sending it on to the on-chain wallet and really the beauty of the lightning network is that even if you don't make even even if you don't have a direct channel with somebody you can find a path through other nodes making it a number of hops to the final destination does that make sense yes that makes sense okay. this channel this channel stuff is brilliant yeah so you have like jack mallers cool. and strike um you have a you know a lot of innovation taking place within um you know this net this network today they just recently integrated with uh twitter for payments um, and tips, um, you know, Jack Mahler's tips, yeah, 
has done great. You should follow Strike and read more up about them, but they're one of the primary players pushing this technology. Hey, kudos to El Salvador, and hey, man, they're saving their country. That's amazing. Yeah, that dude will either come out as the genius of the decade, he or maybe it, maybe if something goes wrong, I don't know. He has taken a huge risk. That's for sure. That's some big balls move. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's forced competition and innovation within the space from different payment providers. Um, if you look at Western Union and the the amount of uh, expenses incurred and the the time it takes to uh, you know, send money cross border. Um, I think it was like three to five days, right? With sometimes being, um, you know, twenty yeah. percent expense at the customer side, and now you have an instantaneous payment solution to send money across the world that interacts with the blockchain layer one mainnet in three to five seconds. So, you know, it forces um, the market to compete, right? Uh, in a space that these traditional players. Giants have um, stayed in due to compliance, due to different ways of looking at the current infrastructure they use um, to send transactions cross-border. Um, it's it's amazing to see somebody so vocal <laughs> about uh, a transition for you know the self-sovereign individuals, um, you know, giving back to the retail side and you know what it will do and what it has done. Um, is not only forced uh, innovation, but also re- um, improved productivity and reduced expenses. So it forces the incumbent um, from a company perspective to innovate because he's essentially taking a huge part of that uh, TAM of that company's business, that target addressable market. And, you know, that's what you're seeing all over uh, in the, the crypto ecosystem. Yeah, something to take note of is the the huge MNC giants in El Salvador like Starbucks, McDonald's. These guys have started to accept Bitcoin as a payment method. And what's to stop them to implement this in other nations as well? So I think El Salvador has started a domino. It should have a domino effect ideally. The way that El Salvador has legalized Bitcoin as legal tender, um, you know... <laughs> Game theory again, right? We're seeing other other countries doing the same thing, and like you said, it's a domino. So that looking at the way legally they've been able to implement this solution um, within their country um, also kind of looks at the overall implementation um, of the you know central banking digital currencies and um, the current. Uh, giants in that space within the IMF. So there's definitely political things going on as well, which, you know, when it comes to money and value, that will always be a thing, but it's definitely forced um, some country arbitrage right now. I want to say something. Um, uh, yeah, the, also, I, I wonder, because a lot of companies became zombie companies that they, they're just going on a like doing the same stuff and don't want to evolve anymore they get free checks from the government and all that stuff so uh, if they don't innovate they're going to be left behind and they're going to go bankrupt i have a feeling some of them are going to end up doing that because when you you know when you're too comfortable and not evolving they're going to have a hard time trying to evolve also i want to say like the domino effect around the world if the country and the leader really cares about their country they're going to adopt and they're going to evolve because they want to save their people i don't know right. uh, there's going to be some countries left behind i have guaranteed guaranteed man i have a feeling uh, maybe maybe i'm wrong but uh, man the shit i see are these leaders uh, i don't know I think it's the bigger countries that will be left behind in this race. Which countries? The bigger countries. Yeah, because they're they're, they're they 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 keep their ideology of we're the yeah uh, we like the things how we how we do our things or nobody's gonna take us down. I'm like, guy, dude, put your ego aside and fucking let's grow let's grow up, it's, 
<laughs> I'm talking French. <laughs> That's amazing. Granted, you li- do you understand what I said? <laughs> no, I only know my four sentences. Okay. Oh man, I gotta teach. Got. You. I gotta teach. You. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, niche. That's what yeah, I'm saying. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. It's. I was I was listening to a, a cool podcast the other day, and it was talking about uh, economics and you know collapse of societies in the past, and doing kind of a historical review and analyzing, trying to provide insights, and you know usually complexity. The complexity of a society is a good thing. So you know problems lead to solutions, and those solutions present new problems which lead to more solutions which you know that's where value is created when you're solving problems um i think what's happening right now is that the crypto addresses some of the financial concerns um and it's done it in a very uh unique way using very innovative technologies that you know the web 2.0 was built upon right so I got my start originally in sales at a company called Cisco Systems. So I got a real paint by numbers education on the underlying infrastructure plumbing that made up the internet. Um, and I see a lot of similarities of how the ecosystem of Web 3.0 technologies are building on top of protocols today. But one of the things that stands out in my head is you have the OSI model, um, the operating system of Web 2.0 technologies um, that interoperate with each other. So one of the unique things, you know, thinking, looking at crypto, being in crypto, but thinking about like, where was the monetization? Like, where was the best ROI from the internet 2.0? It's companies like Cisco that, you know, provided the routing protocols, the open interoperable protocols um, where companies have built uh, different application usage, data centers, um, on t- databases on top of it. And one of the unique things that, you know, I find similarities in is like, if you could own a routing protocol that, you know, is built upon by service providers, like you have the opportunity today. Like that is, that is unbelievable in my eyes. Like you can own a piece of a protocol by participating within the network. Um, right now when I see huge corporations that looking at fundamentals, they, they value adoption of their networks. We're seeing the same thing happen in web 3.0. One of the differences is if you look at Facebook, um, the original investors um, that own stock within that company are the ones that got provided the value of the adoption of that network. So if we, we think about us as individual contributors that we're using a freemium service, which isn't free due to all the data that is scraped out of us um, in mind uh, and sold to third parties for marketing purposes. Uh, what if you could own your activities? And that's something that's built upon Web 3.0. So like behavior economics changes. Um, the opportunities within this space even though there's going to be a lot of regulation, there's going to be a lot of hurdles to get over. Like you have opportunities to change, uh, you know, behavior economics, like economic models. So there's definitely, um, you know, we're in this space and it's in its infancy, but we'll continually expansively grow. But as an individual contributor, if you, buy and participate in a network like Patrice has done over the last year in different ecosystems, like he's getting paid for his activity, right? That's fucking amazing. Patrice. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I like the protocols are amazing. And like, it, it, I just, it's just, I'm in full control. I read, I understand what they're doing and you help me. Grats. Thanks. And niche as well. And, and, and it's, it's makes sense to me. And I'm like, why would I not participate in this for the future for security and all the good stuff that comes with it you know i mean why not well grads uh so just for just for the clips of the podcast can you quickly differentiate between web 2.0 and web 3.0 in simple terms yeah that's a good question yep uh <clears throat> 
in simple terms. Yeah, you gotta you help uh, for for me the newbie and for other newbies out there. <laughs> yeah, I think looking at it. So, like, do you guys understand the underlying hardware and software that makes up the internet today? Like, would would you be familiar with like a switch, like a router um, that is like the plumbing, like the uh. pipes that are interconnected using routing protocols that make up the internet today. Like that's originally how web 2.0 was built up, like set up. Um, you know, it's interconnected routing protocols talking to, to each other. Um, and that's being, so when I look at it, it's like in the internet 2.0, um, the interoperable, interoperable players who are providing hardware, um, to build the initial network up were the winners for the first 10 years. From like 2014 to today, we've seen software e hardware solutions. So like virtualization, like companies like, like for example, you used to build out a data center. You would have physical servers. You would stand, the company would stand it up. It had a high operational and capital costs. Um, to keep and maintain it, <clears throat> and then you would deploy software um, from on-site solutions. Now we've moved to cloud, right? Like now software um, has been able to provide the same service, uh, you know, better flexibility at risk of security currently. Um, but we've seen software eat all these hardware solutions within the market over the last 10 years. Now we're seeing SaaS platforms where it's like, you don't have to purchase the hardware. You don't have to own and operate all the software. Like you just have a subscription service. Um, and we've seen SaaS do really well and will continue to do well. I think the next iteration in this is uh, individual contributors and a decentralized network um, providing these same platforms, these same applications. It's like now you have the blockchain, different blockchain layer ones. You have the different scaling solutions that are helping um, reduce transaction costs. You're having dApps being built on these blockchain platforms that interoperate with each other. You have interoperability between the blockchains. It's like all the same things are happening um, for a unique way to... Um, provide individual contributors that adopt early a, a token form of economics that, you know, from my perspective is, is vastly more efficient um, to individual contributors. So, you know, that's the difference I see. I would say hardware ate so or software ate hardware, then, um, you know, so software ate all hardware solutions. And the last thing it ate was money. And I think crypto addressed that. So, from from my point of view, uh, would you say that software eats the hardware? Is like nowadays we don't connect to our computer; we mm, connect to yeah. a cloud that has a desktop for us. Yeah, it's I just see that. The, the evolution of the World Wide Web. I really, see that at companies a lot in different networks. That's true. Yeah, I see that, but, but yeah, I see that a lot happening nowadays. The companies tend to move on to you don't have your personal computer; you just have a screen and a little transmitter device and you connect to a server which has your stuff which is the cloud and they have they have they have this infrastructure somewhere in the world yeah so the evolution of the internet usage as you know it's been rapid and fertile we are in an era where upgrades are deemed necessary in all facets of digital platforms I think Web 3.0 is the answer to the decade-long question of finding a solution that represents back-end functionalities in addition to front-end capabilities that we indulge in on a daily basis. Uh, kind of a read, write, execute web is what Web 3.0 is in, in simple terms. It's a solution where kind of data is not owned by but shared in what is being termed as a semantic web. Um, web 3.0 kind of enables share uh enable systems to create share and connect content via search and artificial intelligence kind of powers web pages to understand the meaning of words 
That's what nat natural language processing means. And so that instead of just recognizing keywords, um, I think Web 3.0 is much more than that. And I think we're witnessing it in you know a specific ecosystem. Okay, so grads, the final episode for this part of the series. Uh, exactly one year ago, or maybe around this range in last year, you gave us a price prediction for Bitcoin. It was $100,000 by the end of 2021. Do you still stand by it? I think I called out in 2019 uh, in the group. I called out 300. Oh yeah, that, that's what, that was last to yeah, last year. 300 to 500k. I think end of year, 220k is the average. I depend If we have blow off the top, maybe it's higher. Um, the, the introduction of ETFs currently, um, I think announcements just came in the last couple of weeks here, or last week. I think that um, stands behind the credibility. Looking on on-chain analytics today, um, you know, the, the whales are taking off Bitcoin from exchanges, um, you know, the analytics look good. So I would say 220k average in mm. a year. Wow. Crazy. So, all right, gentlemen, this wraps the first episode of the crypto series because now we've laid the foundation for what what is DeFi, what's wrong with the system, what is the future of DeFi. So in the next part of the series, we'll cover some more spicy stuff like NFTs. <laughs> I love that stuff. Then we'll, I guess we'll delve, delve into the different protocols. The different protocols Petri always mentions, all his crazy returns. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about lending, borrowing, staking, everything uh, that comes into core DeFi. So thank you for tuning in. See you next week. Thanks, Nish. Thanks, Nish. Thank you.